Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Alex Andreu, where we try to absorb breaking stories and populate the news matrix for the days ahead. To help me, I have the Atlantic's Yasmin Serhan. Morning, Yasmin. Good morning, Alex. And Eid Mubarak, I should say. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm coming to you very caffeinated for the first time. Are you time fully in a long caffeinated? Time. Excellent. I'm so excited. It's like the elixir of the gods. It's just yeah, very happy to be back. <laughs> right, let's get cracking. So, local elections are coming this week on Thursday. Both sides are trying to manage expectations. What do we think will constitute a bad day for Johnson or a good day for Starmer? And are the two the same? So uh, what, what I'm trying to say is, could both of them have a bad day? Or could there be a result where both of them can reasonably spin it as a good day? That's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously for the conservatives, the principal question is you know, going to be, what do these elections tell us about public opinion particularly vis-a-vis Boris Johnson mm. in the wake of Partygate and, you know, the, obviously the rising cost of living. Um, I feel like this is going to be a pretty big stress test for the conservatives and perhaps an indicator of, of things to come. Then, you know, obviously we don't have another election coming anytime soon, but I think this is going to be a big test for them. So obviously, if they are seen to lose a lot of seats, I think if I'm not mistaken, um, there are more labor, like labor, I think, is defending more seats but also potentially means they have more to win there. If the conservatives are seen to lose, particularly cities, I think is where they're they're most vulnerable, then I think that was where they they could be seen as having taken a loss. But by that same token, you know, the, the question for labor is whether they can regain ground that's, you know, been lost over the last yeah. decade plus in, in places like Scotland, Northern Ireland. Yes, the the polls show Labour making a little bit of a comeback in Scotland. Mm. Um, they look as if they might pip the Tories to second, which is, you know, I mean, you'd n- you would never imagine saying this 20 years ago when Labour was such a firm um, first in Scotland. But, you know, with a the panning they've taken recently, I think regaining second would be quite a big thing. Obviously, the SNP are going to mount a really, really stern defence of those seats. Labour are pointing out that the areas contested, as you said, are primarily Labour-controlled, and that 2018, when these seats were last contested, was a sort of high point for Labour. The Telegraph, on the other hand, is predicting the Tories are in for a really rough ride, possibly losing up to 550 councillors. So I would imagine that might be a little bit of expectation management by the Tories, sort of setting mm. a very high failure bar so, they, <laughs> so that they can then say, well, we did better than the gloomier predictions, as it were. I think what's crucial here, I mean, even just talking about 2018, I mean, both major parties' leaders have changed hands since then. So I feel like Mm. in both cases, obviously, it's going to be a measure of how the parties are doing. But I think it's also going to be sort of a performance review on both their leaders, you know, yeah, yeah, is Labour popular under Keir Starmer? Um, Is Boris Johnson still the winning man that he once was? Yeah. And, And I mean, the overall truth is that there is now a nationwide, fairly stable poll lead of about 6% for Labour, from a position where you know, the Tories were ahead by, at their height, 21 points ahead, exactly two years ago. 
Mm. So that's, uh, you know, that's quite a fall from grace for a talismanic election winner, I guess. And more interestingly, the underlying data is hardening as well in favour of Labour. Redfield Wilton, for the fourth time, shows Labour ahead on every policy area. So they're more trusted you know, on health and the economy and education and every single policy area, as well as values like trust, honesty, competence. Um, trust, honesty, competence, not things we've discussed at all. Yes, I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you wonder. Um, and Ben Walker points out that even though the Labour lead is smaller than it was at the height of Partygate, so around sort of Christmas last year, it is more solid in a strange way because there are fewer, there are more people actually transferring their vote from Tory to either Labour or Lib Dem and fewer don't knows. So the more that pool of people who moved from voting Conservative to, oh, I don't know, the more that pool narrows, the more difficult, I think, is to gain those voters back because they've gone over to the other side. A a little word, what about Northern Ireland? I mean, this is quite a big election for the Northern Irish Assembly. The latest polling shows Alliance neck and neck with DUP for second Mm. place, which is quite extraordinary as well. Yeah, I was actually just looking at the polls, and it looks like I think, yeah, a Politico's poll of polls, which I think is an aggregate. And I think Sinn Féin mm. is up by six points. Um, Sinn Féin, of, of course, being the, the party that campaigns for a united Ireland. So, yeah, yeah I mean, they're on course for what looks like a historic victory if they become the largest party in Stormont, which is, yeah, quite something. And I think definitely something I'll certainly be watching on Thursday, I feel like perhaps even more cataclysmic than <laughs> Labour and Tory results, though, of course, those will be big as well. I agree. I think it's a more important election than any of the others going on, actually, in in many, many ways. Now, looking at the media landscape, I mean, I don't particularly even want to discuss all the (laughs) Starmer and and, uh, Rayner stuff, because it's just scurrilous gossip, really. It's, It's no more than that. But what do you think the this continued campaign, especially by the Daily Mail, what do you think it shows about the media landscape? Is this a taste of things to come in a general election? Will they go full tribal and uh, uh, support Johnson, even though they've been quite critical of him about various things, including Partygate in the past? What the sense I get is that when it comes down to it, when there's an election at play, they just they dump any sense of apprehension and go full tribal. What do you think? I mean, yeah, I mean that. I, I'm just thinking back to that Angela Rayner story with the um the really ridiculous kind of misogynistic. You know, just thinking back to stories like that. I mean, obviously, it's it's kind of a, a taste of the very partisan media that <laughs> that I'm I'm not necessarily unfamiliar with. I mean, you know, mm, obviously mm. in the in the U.S. we we have our our various kind of you know outlets that are kind of you know seen as sort of very very partisan and and who kind of go all guns blazing. Um, you know, you'll 
depending on which channel you're watching, you're going to get a very different perspective of, of sort of how the world works and what matters. And yeah, and yeah, yeah. if you're a reader of the Daily Mail, you're, you're going to be reading about the deputy labor leader apparently managing to transfix the prime minister with her legs. So, I mean, mm. yeah, it's, it, it's, it, I don't necessarily know that it's surprising, <laughs> though. I mean, I can't believe we're even discussing this in, in the year of the law 2022. Well, if you, if you somehow, said that we would be a year ago uh, when we were still in the midst of like heavy, I mean, not to say the pandemic has ended, but like certainly when we were still like, that was all we talked about. Like mm. we'd be moving on to tractors and legs and parties. <laughs> we'll we'll get on to tractors. We've come a long way. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, I don't know. I mean, when I've, when I first moved to the UK, I obviously was kind of keenly aware that you had these sort of tabloidy type news Hmm. outlets that were very different, obviously, from, I think, the, the American style. I'm not saying it's any better, but I think they are just two very different styles. And, you know, I was sort of introduced to the likes of the Daily Mail as, as kind of being this way. So in a, in a way, it feels pretty par for the course, right? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I I must admit, I don't really read the Daily Mail, but mostly because every time I open a link, it crashes my computer, um, <laughs> which is unfortunately going to happen to most Well, I mean, tablets. here's the weird thing. in In the States, I think so network news is very partisan, and yes. I, and I'm always surprised by the difference in how Fox and CNN are reporting something. But I think the the printed press or electronic press nowadays, I think they are better at separating what is uh, news reporting and what is editorial opinion there seems to me to be a clearer separation in their pages of this is a thing that happened and this is what we think of the thing that happened. Is the answer better or stricter standards of objectivity? Is the answer to be able to effectively complain about the Daily Mail's coverage and get some recourse? Or is the answer for more partisan press on the centre and the left? It's a, it's an interesting question. And obviously, you know, I think especially I didn't go to journalism school as such because I didn't major in journalism. But I do remember, you know, in the, the couple of classes I did take and obviously my at my sort of informal education at the student newspaper, you know, there, there was always kind of objectivity was sort of put on this kind of high sort of place that you sort of always aspire to. But to be honest, I think you can trust readers and, and we should trust readers to know I think what we need is a lot of media literacy, because I think p putting the standard of saying all these publications, all these different outlets should simply be more objective. I mean, objective itself is a bit like, you know, they probably argue that they are being objective. It's just their mm -hmm. own slanted version of it. I mean, I think that's that's an ideal that's that's difficult and perhaps unrealistic to yeah. meet, particularly in, in the partisan environment that we're in. I think what we need to do is enable readers and use consumers to understand who they're reading. And, and when they are reading them, because, you know, even when I, I mean, obviously, as a journalist, I pay a lot of attention to bylines. I pay a lot of attention to the various newspapers and the slants. So, you know, when I read something, I kind of take it like, OK, I know that this is coming from a left of center newspaper yeah, yeah. versus a right wing newspaper. And you kind of judge what you're reading accordingly. Right. And I think that is probably the better way of approaching it, because, you know, mm. I think any calls for, you know, the Daily Mail or others to be more objective is simply going to, I think, will just end in a lot of disappointment. Okay, so in counter-argument to that, I would point out that we managed to do it for television news. Um, we true, managed yeah. to, to have standards of balance 
um, for television news. So it's not impossible. But I do take your point, and I think it's an excellent point that uh, me sort of news literacy. Uh, more generally, is a better answer because so many people now get their news from non-mainstream sources anyway. That mm. it seems that going to the you know the critical faculties of the person absorbing the news story, and and teaching them how to tell a factual one from a puff piece is a better solution. I think so. I agree with you on that. Now you mentioned tractors. We have to. <laughs> touch on it um, briefly, even if we then bathe in antiseptic. MP Neil Parrish has gone quickly, obviously under pressure for Porngate, I think, not to rumble on during the local elections. But does that create more peril down the line? Because that means there will be a second by-election in Tiverton and Honiton in Devon, Added to the one in Wakefield, you will remember Imran Ahmad Khan was convicted for sexual assault of a minor, so he's gone. Or does it weirdly reduce the danger? Wakefield is a marginal. The Tories could actually lose. Tiverton was won by 40 points last time, so more likely to be kept. Is it, if we go into a, 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 a sort of day with two by-elections, as it were, and the the Tories lose one but win one, does that soften the the possible blow for them? I mean, it's only upside, isn't it? Unless they manage to lose both of them. I was going to say, I mean, I still feel like a loss is a loss, though, here. And invariably, mm. at the end of the day, what they're dealing with is two MPs who have had to resign their seats for, you know, one convicted of sexual assault and the other guilty of watching porn in the comments. I mean, these are not, <laughs> these yeah. are pretty um, embarrassing, embarrassing circumstances. And I'm sure that the lab labor and the Lib Dems will, will have a field day with it. And I think especially if those parties kind of almost, you know, as we've seen in the past, sometimes they'll, you know, maybe not stand a candidate or sort of like quietly support the other yeah, yeah. in a bit to sort of, you know, um, obviously kind of work against the Tories, then mm, that doesn't, mm. you know, that doesn't help. So it's hard to either way, even if the Tories do hold on to these seats, which, as you say, especially in a safe seat, like Tiverton is likely, they're still going to be coming from the point of defending the fact that the MP before did XYZ. And, and I think that's, you know, the opposition will have a field day with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they, they could say it's a win, but it's also still a loss because you're one seat shorter than you were before, though they of course have many. Yes, I, I think you're right. I think the nature of the, the reason why these two MPs have gone is quite important. Our colleague uh, on the podcast, Aisha Hazarika, I think put it very, very well the other day when she said that they all feed the notion that Johnson has basically turned government into a frat house, you know, where there's a, a, a sort of party, laddie, anything goes vibe about it. And I, I think people don't particularly like that. So Johnson is addressing the Ukraine parliament today uh, remotely, pledging to give more help to the tune of 300 million in military uh, equipment and make a big Churchillian speech. And we know he's going to make a big Churchillian speech because quite helpfully, 
the Churchillian bits of his speech have been leaked to the press ahead of time. Is this more to do with the local elections than geopolitics, or or is it dual purpose? Am I being unfair? You know, obviously, I think world leaders at the moment to be seen to be strong in Ukraine, I'm sure does help them domestically. This is an issue that a lot of people are paying attention to. But, you know, I think so. Yes, this is probably one of the few instances uh, of late where Boris Johnson is seen as quite strong, um, not least because Zelensky has praised him for for in Britain for for their role in supporting them. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I think, yeah, perhaps you could argue it certainly doesn't hurt him. But but I do think that they're, you know, What's happening in Ukraine, I think, has prompted a lot of world leaders to want, you know, to 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 kind of step up and certainly to be seen and to have their countries be seen to be taking uh, the response very seriously. And, and as you say, mm. uh, Boris Johnson was in Kiev, as we know, um, v- very recently. So and, and he will be, I think, the first world leader to address the Ukrainian parliament um, since the conflict began. So it is a pretty big, I think, deal for him. Um, and the UK, I think, is pledging £300 million pounds of further military aid. So yeah, I think it's a mix of both. I'll, I'll give Johnson a bit of credit here. Um, I think, you know, I think also he's probably very welcome because Zelensky, I think, you know, they clearly have a bromance going on that they're, they're very grateful for, for the help that Britain has provided. So, you know, the UK has done, I think, quite well in that relatively. Mm-hmm. And look, he's not the only one, right? Nancy Pelosi was just in Kiev. And of course, we've seen other leaders um, attempt to go as well. Um, so I think there is a desire to really show that they're on side. Hell, Angelina Jolie was in Ukraine recently. So yeah. I think everyone is really trying to, to yeah, kind of yeah. be seen to she's, be doing their she's bit. Not up, she's not up for the locals um, to uh, <laughs> listeners confused by that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yes, he's leaning into his strengths, basically, isn't he? And and Ukraine is arguably his only strength at the moment. Now, slightly more disturbing developments uh, overnight. The the Biden correspondent dinner has been overshadowed by political uh, scoop that Roe versus Wade is about to be overturned. What does this mean in practice? Can you give our listeners a sort of crash course in the constitutional importance of that uh, case? I'll do my best. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so basically what's happened is um, overnight Politico published what appears to be an initial first draft of a majority written opinion that's been penned by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, who for the... Um, for, for those who are non-familiar, um, he's a conservative justice. He was appointed by George W. Bush. And effectively, this draft decision uh, appears to show that the court striking down Roe v. Wade, which is, of course, the landmark Supreme Court decision protecting a woman's right to seek an abortion without excessive government restriction in the United States. So this has been, no doubt, anyone who <laughs> pays attention to U.S. politics, this has always been um, a, a very contentious um, issue, kind of very much dividing on party lines. You know, re- Republicans, more socially conservative people, uh, think that Roe v. Wade needs to be abolished. Um, obviously, liberals, those who who prize a woman's right to you know make decisions about her own body, uh, think it's a vital federal protection. Basically, I mean the the wording from the draft, which which I'm I keep stressing is a draft, and I really should mention here that these kind of leaks from the Supreme Court are not common. Like they don't happen. Um, I think yeah, political it's quite even remarkable. Yeah, this is pretty historic. And then, of course, because, you know, when reading this, you kind of have to take that into account and sort of wonder, you know, what was the desired impact, right? 
because, you know, what was it the case that, you know, they're trying to soften the public to this notion that this is coming? Um, mm. Or are they trying to sort of drum up opposition in, in the hopes? Because, you know, things could still go either way. Nothing is set in stone, I guess I just want to say, but it is nonetheless worrying. I mean, you know, it, in the draft, um, Alito writes that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences um, and, that, and that far from bringing about a national settlement. And that's... On- and that's a surprise, right, Yasmin, because from what from what I had been reading up to now, people expected Roe versus Wade to be weakened, but I don't think anyone was predicting that it was going to be flat out overturned, like that decision was totally wrong and we're going to ignore it from now on. Do justices, generally speaking, change their minds between... I mean, we think, according to Politico's reporting, we think it's going to be an a 5-4 split, mm. depending on one justice, possibly even a 6-3. The point is that flipping a couple of the judges would change the majority verdict. So do... Do judges change their minds between draft and publication? Do we know anything about the process behind the scenes? Or is it fairly set in stone once they start drafting a decision? They've they've sort of taken an internal straw poll and everyone knows where they stand. That's a good question. And and so I mean, according to Politico at least, and and I would defer to them on on kind of the expertise here. I mean, it does sound like opinions can can change and obviously drafts can be rewritten and i'm sure that you know you're probably not going to sign on to a final edition until you've seen it right so i mean i think i i i'm not as clear on sort of the the court practices around this but you know i i guess i would say just it's not set in stone but it is worrying and i think it's it's obviously mm. worth noting that you know we've seen a lot of new justices come onto the bench um, in yep. recent years. You know, Trump nominated a couple. Um, we've got a, a, a new justice um, un, appointed by Biden. So obviously, you know, when the, when the people change, the, the the decisions can can change. So I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it, it's worrying certainly for me. And I think it's it's important to just stress what overturning Roe v. Wade would mean. It, it would effectively end the federal constitutional protection for abortion rights. And it would push that decision back to the states. So it would mean that individual states would get to decide whether to restrict or even ban abortions. That also means some states, like likely my home state of California, would probably still legally allow these procedures to go ahead. Hmm. But it would effectively mean that the U.S. suddenly a woman's right to to end an, an unwanted or unexpected pregnancy, it would really depend geographically on where she's based. That's the kind of end all of yeah. what would happen here. And we'd probably, and you know, what we know, especially, you know, being in the UK, we've seen this in Northern Ireland prior to abortion being legalized there. I mean, you know, what these types of decisions do is end safe and legal abortions, but they don't invariably yeah. end abortions throughout. And I think for me, what I'll what I'm certainly be watching, if indeed this does happen, is, you know, are we then going to start to see those with the means travel? Like, are they effectively just pushing this, this yeah. the, the states? And I mean, this would effectively, you know, this would, I think, mostly affect abortion access in, uh, I think, at least according to Politico, large swaths of the South and the Midwest. And then, of course, you'd see, you know, the more liberal states, obviously, would then potentially become sort of safe havens for, for women seeking. Yeah. So, no, it's it's incredibly troubling. 
Great news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. There's very little else to look out for um, this week, isn't there? Parliament is in recess. There's a purder on announcing new policies, although (laughs) some ministers have seen fit to leak a few to the papers, which is a a no-no. Does that mean all is quiet or with... Will those with eyes on Tory leadership be quietly plotting behind the scenes? I mean, the only other thing I'll say, and this isn't exactly a a local elections thing, but um, the EU, I I think, is expected to pass further sanctions with regard to to Russian oil. There's a lot of discussion happening now about Russian oil imports. It seems like Hungary and Slovakia are kind of the last holdouts, but there there seems to be more uh, momentum in favor of phasing out those imports by the end of the year. So hmm. that's one thing I'll certainly be keeping an eye out for. And 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 uh, uh, I have a, a, a cheeky suspicion that because we know more fines have been issued, but the police have said that they won't be announcing any details until the end of the purder. So it could be that Friday morning the local elections having been and gone, the police come out and announce the latest tranche of fines, which will revitalise the the uh, Partygate issue. So that might be something to look out for. Okay, you are now ready to start your week. Yasmin Sohan, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. If you found this and our wider family of podcasts useful, then you can help support our work on the funding platform Patreon for just £2 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Every donation keeps us going and spurs us on. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu with Yasmin Sohan. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.